If you know your Bible, you know we've skipped a ton of really important stories in John's Gospel so far. John's combo with Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, and several others. But that's because this season is all about the seven signs John records. We're focusing in on these seven signs because they're just that, signs, like signposts all pointing to something greater. Today's episode is the fifth sign, and for me, this is the moment where all of the stories start coming together like a puzzle that you're putting together and you can finally start to see the picture that you are making. But to see it, here's an important detail to understand. John uses the word life 47 times in his gospel. That's more than all the other gospel writers combined. Now remember, we're reading the English translation of these stories, but they were originally written in Greek. And in Greek, there are three different words that all get translated into our English word, life. So when you see the word life in the New Testament, it's one of three Greek words. Now, all of these words have a slightly different meaning. The words are bios, suke, and zoe. For bios, think biology, it's the quality of being alive, life in the physical body. Suke, think psychology, is more being alive in your entire being, your soul. And then there's zoe. Zoe is the word used the majority of the time in John's Gospel. It doesn't just mean being physically alive, it means something more than that. More than just breathing. See, when John writes that Jesus came that we may have life and life to the full, he didn't just mean that we would be really good at breathing or staying alive, he meant something more. He meant we would be alive, really alive, like fully human, not walking around like zombies in The Walking Dead, but thriving, creating, innovating, taking this world somewhere. Life, real life, that's what Jesus came to give us. Now, knowing that, let's get going with the fifth sign. Welcome to Stories in Scripture a podcast dedicated to telling the big story of the Bible one piece at a time. My name is Keith. And I'm Ryan. This is sign number five out of seven as we continue our journey through John's Gospel. Jesus is gone. He disappeared when the crowd's excitement was at its peak. Without the famous rabbi who had fed them all, the crowd had slowly disappeared. They had no reason to stay now. The twelve men watched as the last of the people make their way home. They stand, alternating between looking at each other and looking at the mountains where rabbi has wandered off. What do we do now? John asks. We cross the sea, Peter states. Shouldn't we wait for rabbi? No. He gave us directions. We aren't waiting. We cross the sea. Peter sets off down the slope with purpose. One by one, the others follow. John lingers behind, staring at the ridge, as if willing the rabbi to return. He is nervous to return to civilization without Jesus. After the sign of the food, John knows things won't be the same, and he wants to be by rabbi's right hand when he ascends. He sighs. He turns and follows the others. Besides, John thinks, I know the sea. I grew up on the sea. It's a place I love to return to. Signs four and five go hand in hand. 
Jesus is continuing to allude to the Passover Exodus narrative we talked about in the last episode. So it's important to note that he chose the sea as the setting of his next sign. Because when God brought Moses and the Israelites out of slavery, how did he do it? With water. It was the Red Sea. And John knows this. He's Jewish. So on his mission to explain who this Jesus guy really is, he takes a couple of chapters and a couple of signs to tell a series of stories rich in imagery. Passover, providing bread from heaven for a crowd in the wilderness, and now water. It's a little difficult for us to pick up on today, but his original audience would have known exactly what he was alluding to. John stares into the blackness of the sea at night. In all his years, he can't remember a night on the sea like this. The fourth watch approaches, but they can't be more than halfway across the sea. The dark makes it impossible to see the shore on either side, so John isn't actually sure how far they've gone. The wind buffers their craft with incredible force. This is ridiculous. We should have turned back hours ago. John shouts at Peter. Peter shouts back. The others are too scared to move or speak. Peter stubbornly insists that they make it to the other side. His pride will be the end of us. The others look at John. Despite being the youngest among them, John is the only one who could stand up to Peter. John shrugs warily at them. He's been trying all night. If Peter was so determined to drive them into the storm, John was too tired to try to stop him. He turned back to the sea. Why did Rabbi leave? What are we doing out here? I got into an argument with someone I worked closely with the other day. We disagreed on something and hashed it out for a while, and towards the end of the argument, I realized something important. I don't want to work with people who are exactly the same as me. If everyone thought just like me, we wouldn't get that far. Tension is what creates all the good stuff. I'd imagine there were a good amount of arguments within the group of disciples. Different personalities have a tendency to do that. What's interesting is when you look at the different people Jesus picked to be a part of the 12, it sure seems like he set it up that way on purpose. Andrew shouts and points toward the water. A few others gather around him. Suddenly, they begin to cheer and shout with him. John walks over to see what they're worked up about. The dawn had thrown enough light over the mountains for them to see, incredibly, a figure walking on the water towards them. John thought, he must need sleep. He's getting delirious. But the others see the same. The figure is now close enough for them to make out who it is. It's Jesus. A wave of comfort passes over John. The panic washes away with each wave Jesus crosses. John begins to feel that Rabbi is no ordinary prophet or teacher. Though he can't quite understand, John feels there is greater purpose to what they are doing. John closes his eyes in gratitude. When he opens them, he feels the boat bump into a landing. They're at shore on the other side. That's an odd way to tell the story. It's also a weird one to include, especially as one of the seven signs John picks to tell the story. Remember, he's got a very limited amount of time to tell all these tales, and he leaves out the transfiguration, the temptation of Jesus, every story about demons, every parable, the Sermon on the Mount, and the institution of the Lord's Supper. 
but he tells a story about Jesus walking on water and then immediately arriving to shore. What's going on here? Well, remember the bigger story. This section is rich with Passover imagery. And how did God save the people out of slavery? Yeah, sure, it was the plagues and Moses and all of that, but really it was the parting of the Red Sea. Pharaoh, plagued by his own pride, pursued the Israelites with his massive army after initially letting them go. He was about to overtake them until God parted the sea and his people walked safely through. Pharaoh, again unable to stop himself, tries to chase them into the sea. And when the waters cease to part, they swallow him up. His pride is the very thing that drives him to his death. But God's people come out the other side and begin the long, slow march towards the promised land. So back to our story, the disciples are in a similar place, needing help to cross the sea. And as they march towards the promised land, God's constantly providing for them. Most recently in the form of bread that just sort of appeared as if from heaven in the last episode. Just like the bread that fell from heaven and sustained Moses and the Israelites as they marched. So put all that together and what is the lesson Jesus is trying to teach them with this fifth sign? Well, let's find out. Crowds begin to gather again. Before they reach the next town, a large group surrounds Jesus and the disciples. John feels the weight of their collective humanity, the heat, the smell, he can almost taste it. The twelve shift in a mixture of excitement and discomfort. Rabbi, when did you get here? Rabbi smiles sadly. John recognizes that look. Rabbi gets it when he feels the needs of the people, but knows they need more than they ask. Today, it's bread. They are hungry. No surprise, John thinks. They've heard how we fed the crowd last time. We'll be asked to feed everyone wherever we go now. Rabbi looks around at the gathered people. You do not look for me because you saw the signs. You look for me because you ate the loaves and had your fill. The people look at each other nervously and slightly ashamed. John knows they can't deny what Rabbi has said. They are there to eat. John raises his eyebrows. It is rare for Rabbi to show frustration with the people who come to see him. He's usually much more gentle with his message. But today, Rabbi seems determined to get his message across. Rabbi sighs and continues. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that will endure to eternal life. My freshman year of college, I wanted to be a quantitative psychologist. Actually, that's not quite true. I wanted to make a lot of money and read an article about how I could do so as a quantitative psychologist. So I signed up for classes, bought all my books, and read a ton. I was constantly reading my freshman year, but not because I wanted to, but because I wanted to get good grades to get into grad school to get a good job to make a lot of money. So in essence, I was reading to make money. Reading was a means to an end. But Keith had a different experience than me. The guy has always read a ton as well, but not as a means to an end. He reads because he loves to read. He loves watching a good writer tell a compelling story. It's his idea of a good time. So Keith and I both read a ton freshman year of college, but for very different reasons. Mine was a means to an end. Keith's was an end in and of itself. In other words, he saw the beauty and value in it, whether or not it would benefit him in the long run. 
that's the shift Jesus is inviting people to make in this moment. He can tell the crowd is following him as a means to an end. Like maybe if we follow the rabbi, we could get healed or set free, or at the very least, we'll probably get some free food out of it. But Jesus has other plans for the world. And it involves so much more than being a means to an end. It starts with them, with us realizing that Jesus is the end in and of himself, that he is the way, that he is the truth, and that he is where the life is found. What must we do for the work God requires? Rabbi stares at the man who said this, Believe in the one he has sent. And what miraculous signs will you give that we can believe he sent you? Yes, our ancestors received manna in the wilderness. Moses provided bread from heaven and they believed. It is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Rabbi closes his eyes and sighs. The crowd still doesn't understand. He looks back at them, a mixture of pity and compassion. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, Jesus says. He continues a little louder over their protests, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread of heaven. The crowd cheers and finds their excitement again. This is what they want. Jesus continues in frustration, louder, which the crowd mistakes for enthusiasm. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The crowd explodes. Yes, give us that. From now on, we want this bread. All eyes are fixed on Rabbi, waiting his response. He lowers his head as if in thought. John waits, holding his breath to see what will happen next. Jesus raises his head and looks at each person in the crowd. I am the bread of life. The crowd is stunned into silence. What was he talking about? They shift uncomfortably. John smiles to himself. He glances at the other disciples. They start to smile too. He doesn't fully understand what Rabbi is saying, but he is definitely starting to. Rabbi is giving them more than just food. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Later in John's Gospel, he gives a beautiful discourse of Jesus talking to his disciples in the moment leading up to his arrest. In the discourse, he gives the disciples a call to abide in him. It's considered by most scholars to be one of the major moments in the gospel. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the thing we are looking for. The call is to stay connected. That is the name of the game. And John, writing as an old man who has had several decades to reflect on his years with the rabbi, can look back on his time and remember what has been most important. Be with Jesus, not as a means to an end, but as an end in and of itself. Abide with him and allow the transformation to happen the same way a vine bears healthy fruit. Naturally and over time, that is the key. John has had so many years to see the real fruit of his ministry. He's learned the secret. Abide, be still, and know that God is God. Did you ever think about leaving? The scribe looks at John. Where did that come from? He knew better than to ask a question like that. The apostle looks at him with a softness that melts the anxiety from his heart. 
John smiles slowly and genuinely. He stays quiet for a few moments, giving the scribe's question the deliberation it deserved. Where else would we have gone? We had been given a glimpse of the life, real life, full life. Something about the rabbi's words, even the difficult ones, resonated with me. Deep in my soul, I felt the truth he spoke. I was in. I still am. The scribe sits, chewing on the apostle's answer. He has another question, but isn't sure if he should ask. The apostle's eyes tell him to continue. Did you ever doubt if you made the right decision? The smile fades, but not in anger. It fades into a reverent melancholy that came from a well of deep feeling. The scribe knew this was sacred ground for them to discuss. Yes, many times. I doubted when my brother was killed. Then again when Peter died, and Andrew, and all the rest. One by one they died, violently and painfully. It hasn't been easy to watch your eleven closest friends be martyred. The two men sit in the silence for a moment, sharing it together. John continues, but I think that's the point of life. Full life, at least. It isn't the same thing as the easy life, the luxurious life. Full life is just that, full of good, of bad, of ugly, of beauty. And with each day, we gather these moments of fullness carrying with them the weight of truth and love, hope and belief, and find the deep appreciation in them with each breath that we breathe. John walks closer to the scribe, placing his hands on the young man's shoulders and holding his gaze. So, no, to answer your question, I never wanted to leave. I wanted the full life. Where else would I go? Thank you for listening to this episode of Stories in Scripture. You can learn more about our project at storiesinscripture.com, follow us on Twitter at SIS Project, or follow us on Instagram at Stories in Scripture.